This morning, I wanted to carry on in our Mark series. I think it's going actually. Amanda did fantastic last week, didn't she? She was absolutely brilliant. And um, I actually want to step back again, just like Chris did. Uh, we've gone forward into chapter seven. Uh, I was looking at chapter six the week before with two stories at the end of chapter six on the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, Jesus on the boat. But I want to go back to the first six verses in chapter six, because it's a passage that actually we don't often tackle. Actually, look around, there's not, there's not a huge amount on it. If we read it, you might realize why that is. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter six, it's verses one to six. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. I think it's quite easy to start to realize why this passage isn't looked at massively. And as I read it and as I dwelt upon it, I was struck really by many things in this passage, but specifically the last verse. Jesus, this is Jesus, kind, compassionate, loving. And we hear him say he was amazed at their lack of faith. I don't know how you feel about that, but it feels like quite an uncomfortable feeling because actually we sometimes look at our own faith, don't we? And we start to acknowledge, uh, is Jesus going to look at me and be amazed at my absolute lack of faith? Do you know, when you read the New Testament, there are only two occasions where we find that Jesus is amazed. Once, the first time he encounters the faith of a centurion. And he sees his faith. He comes and he says, look, you need to heal my son. And Jesus says, it's done. And he has to make this long journey back. But he's in faith that Jesus has healed his son from a distance. And Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. And this is the only other time we find Jesus amazed. Do you know, we live in a culture here, don't we, in the UK. That when we talk about faith, when we look at faith, faith in Jesus Christ, actually our population here in the UK, it's not quite like America, Probably there's about 3% of people in the UK who would declare that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 3%. Do you know, we hear and we read stats that are out there today, which are quite disturbing, actually. Um, and the stats that are out there, actually, for our American friends here, they are American. They spend a lot of money on trying to figure out what's going on with the church and and looking forward. And the stats that are coming out, um, the Barna Institute has done some, they're saying now that three out of four 
Christian teens walk away from church after they leave home. Three out of every four teens walk away from their faith. And out of those 75%, 60% say that it's due simply to not believing anymore. They don't have faith in Jesus. But you know, the stats don't stop there. The Fuller Institute has some other stats. And we do have to be careful when we look at stats because stats can be put about however they want them to look. So I'm not too focused on the stats, but I'm more focused on actually what it's telling us. It's saying that in America, over 3,500 Christians in America are leaving the church in America every day. It doesn't stop there. It says over 1,500 pastors last year left the ministry every month. As I said, we need to be careful when we talk about stats. Sometimes they're there to scare and to shake up. But actually, I think what these stats are here to tell us is that when we look at this issue of faith and unbelief, this issue is a huge issue for all of us. If 60% of our teens are leaving church down to faith and unbelief, then we need to take note of what's going on here. It seems to be the biggest concern for many when it comes to living out our faith. And the stats actually show us that none of us are immune to having our faith rocked. So if you're sitting there thinking, don't worry, I'm solid rock. Actually, we need to have a bit more humility and to go, do you know what? Here we've got a village who grew up with the Messiah and they did not believe. And Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. I know as I look around, as I talk to people, as I've experienced that actually we are rocked by life circumstances, aren't we? We're rocked by pervading worldviews. Some of the Barner Institute stats were talking about professors in universities. It said that there is only 6% of professors who are Christians in America. And it said that if you are a Christian under a professor who is not, you are 50% more likely to be mocked harshly if you bring a Christian viewpoint into your uh, education. That's what our younger generation hello, are dealing with. I know that we get rocked by all sorts of things. There are questions, aren't there, that actually we don't seem to be able to find answers to. There are times when we feel like we're actually all alone and God isn't with us. He feels silent. So this issue of faith and unbelief is so relevant for us. And I believe from this passage, these six verses, there's three things that we can see that led to this village of Nazareth actually stepping into unbelief that stopped them from believing who Jesus was and what he did. So I think if we look at these things, we can hopefully help ourselves in standing secure of building our faith, of being able to stand firm. And the first one, they're all Fs, sort of. The first one is familiarity. You've heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah? Um, Essentially what this means is when an acquaintance, often it's a relationship or a marriage or uh, you're around someone for a long time, actually what we do is we get to see their shortcomings. We get to see their faults. And it becomes easier to dislike this person because of that. 
I'm not saying that's the case for Nazareth and Jesus, because I think it is different. But we have to understand the context of this encounter. Okay, Jesus is gone back to his hometown. This isn't the first time he's gone back to his hometown, but he's gone back with his disciples. And Nazareth, to try and give you a bit of background on this village, this was a place that was small. It was remote. It was parochial. It didn't have any major roads or routes coming through it. It wasn't a place you had to go through. It wasn't renowned or historical in any sense. It probably had a population, they think, of between three to 500 people. Which means, when you think about it, a lot of churches are three to 500 people. Jesus probably knew, having grown up there, he probably knew almost every person by name. There would have been those in this village who had been educated through school with Jesus. Those classmates who sat next to him in tests, who played sports with him. There would have been those close family friends who knew all of his brothers and sisters. Some of you might not have even known Jesus had brothers or sisters. He did. They would have seen the chaos. As you come around our house, you will encounter chaos with three children, especially my three children. But these close family friends in the village, they would have known the chaos of Jesus' family. That would have been there, I am absolutely positive. They would have remembered the instances where Jesus wandered off to the synagogue at 12 and his parents were frantic going, where is he? And maybe they were sent on, go to this place, go to this place, see if you can see him in the, in the town. They had witnessed him out and about, playing in the streets with friends. Then there would have been those people who would have seen him in his workshop. He was a carpenter or a builder. And they would have seen him working with his hands, with different materials. And they would have bought things, furniture for their homes, off Jesus. And you know what? Jesus had these brothers and sisters, and his family, there wasn't anything special about his family as such. This was an ordinary family in a village. We know they weren't ordinary, because Jesus was there, and it wasn't an ordinary situation. But this family would have been an ordinary family in the village. They didn't have any fame, they didn't have any special title, They weren't wealthy, they weren't renowned. They were a normal family to everybody else. They would not have stood out. Jesus would have stood out when he returned. Why? For one, he was unmarried and he was in his 30s. And this would have meant people in Nazareth would have probably been slightly sceptical towards him. Okay? Why is this guy not married? They got married pretty young back then. But we find out that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. I don't know how that makes you feel, that phrase. As I said, it, it makes me uncomfortable. Okay? It makes me one personally uncomfortable. But secondly, it really saddens me. That the only other place, he's, he's amazed twice and he's amazed once at their lack of faith. This village, Nazareth, had become so over-familiar 
with Jesus. That they started to believe what Nathaniel had said. Nothing good could possibly come from Nazareth, from this remote village. Do you know, they'd heard about these amazing miracles that he was doing. They were amazed, it says, at his speaking. They'd heard about all these different miracles that he'd been doing up to this point. His fame was at quite a high point here. But they couldn't get past these images that they'd grown up with. They didn't expect anything else but the same old Jesus. Yes, maybe gifted in some ways, but they become blasé over who this man actually was. In fact, this familiarity led them not just to be blasé over Jesus, but actually it caused them to become offended and offensive at the same time. Contempt. And you have these phrases here. You need to go to that next slide. Isn't this the carpenter? These phrases aren't, in a sense, just facts. They're meant to offend him. They're meant to put him down. Isn't this the carpenter? He's just a carpenter. That's what they're saying. This guy's just a carpenter. He's not a priest. He's not somebody important in the village. He hasn't stood out in that way. He's the equivalent to a builder or a brickie. That's what Jesus would have been. Yes, it's a skilled job, but honestly, nothing special. Then this next phrase we see, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? This one really wants to get a dig. Okay? This is really meant to offend because actually people were referred to as the son of someone. Jesus should have been the son of Joseph, the carpenter. That's how people would have referred to him. And in fact, in other verses, you see it. But specifically because they are offended and they want to cause offense, they've specifically put him under Mary. And there's intent here. There's intent because this whole village has been gossiping about potentially this illegitimate child. That's what they're trying to mark out here. Isn't this... Mary's son, the illegitimate child that we all know about, but we don't speak about. Now, some scholars have mentioned, obviously, that at this point, Joseph was probably dead. But still, even with a dead father, you would still say he's the son of Joseph. We find out that actually this contempt that they have, this aggression, was even more disgraceful on on other occasions. We find out in Luke 4, that probably a year previously to this encounter where he's gone to Nazareth, he travels to Nazareth. And it says this, it's Luke 4, 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. He'd been doing some teaching. They got up and they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This was in Nazareth. His own village tried to throw him off the cliff. And Jesus is returning with his disciples. This familiarity that they had with Jesus bred contempt. It meant that they chose not to believe who he was as the Messiah. 
In fact, we find out in John 7, verse 5, that even his brothers, his own siblings, did not believe in him. That I find mind-blowing. Can, can you imagine this? Mary, your mother, has had a visit from an angel. Your father has also been visited to confirm that this is the virgin birth. Now, my mum had an experience, which I look at, and she remembers. I'm one of six. She remembers on the third child, she was in a very low place. They had three very young children. And God appeared to her and told her to call my brother the name that she called him. She said, it's the only time I've ever heard God audibly speak. She heard an audible voice in the room. And for us as a family, to even think about question that, knowing my mother's faith, I just can't do that. And here you have Mary, who God chose because we know she was a woman of faith. And you have his siblings who are choosing not to believe what God has done or is going to do through their brother, Jesus. He is not the Messiah. That blows my mind. But we do find that, that actually they do turn. They turn to follow him. And in fact, it wasn't until after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that we read in Acts 1-4, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they came through, okay? They got to that point of faith. But at this point here, they are not following their brother. This over-familiarity led to contempt. And as I look at this, and I look at the context for us, what does it mean for us, this? Well, I think missionally, I think Jesus already knew what was going to happen when he went to Nazareth. He'd already been tried to throw him off the cliff. But what he's doing here is he's taking his disciples with him. Because he's about to send them out on mission in the next verses. The first mission they go out on. And he talks about finding a man and a woman of peace and staying when you find someone who is open to the gospel and moving on when you're rejected. And I think very purposely, Jesus wanted his disciples to see how he would be treated, how actually rejection was part of this story. He wanted them to know how he responded so that they could respond. They would have seen the absolute hostility. And obviously we know that many crowds followed him and then turned against him throughout the New Testament. So for us, I think it means that we shouldn't be surprised when we face hostility, contempt, rejection for having a faith in Jesus. Okay? When you're witnessing to colleagues, when you're witnessing to family members who don't believe, you may get a reaction that is not a nice reaction. But that's okay. Because Jesus says we're to expect that. He told us that the world would hate us because of him. So he's forewarned us and he's experienced it. So for missionally, that's how it works. I think as I think about us within a church, this, this feels like it has more application again and more challenge for me. I don't want us as Freedom Church to become like Nazareth. Nazareth, this place where 
We expect to see Jesus, but we don't expect anything of him. That was what the village expected. A place where we have become over-familiar with him. And this amazing gospel news, this transforming message, to the point that it might have just become dull to us. A place where we just settle for what we've seen as we've been growing up somewhere else. A place where maybe they, we lack expectation to see his power and his majesty displayed. A place where we've lost our awe at who God is and what he's done for us. A place that may become indifferent about his presence with us. They weren't bothered about Jesus being there. They'd become blasé. A place where his word no longer convicts hearts. A place where his miracles no longer astonish us. A place where his death on the cross no longer makes us overwhelmed by the absolute grace and mercy that he has shown us. A place where we would become passive about encountering him, the Christ, the Messiah in our lives. Can I be honest? That would be tragic. Not only in the church context, but in our daily lives. I think familiarity, when we look at Jesus, should make us grow more and more in love. Because the depths to him, as we actually get to know him, they just go deeper and deeper and deeper. The mercies each morning that we get to receive make us more grateful and thankful. Familiarity should never breed contempt when it comes to him. Do you know if it was about one of us over familiarity and people not believing? Well, do you know what? That would be a shame. It'd be sad. When it comes to Jesus, it's not just sad. It has massive eternal consequences. For some of us, when it comes to familiarity, I think we can look at Jesus and go, no, I'm in love with him. And I love what he's doing and I'm so excited by him. But when I look at the church, do you know that I just want to hold it arm's distance because you've become over familiar with it. Disappointment, anger are things that have happened towards the church. And yet when we see this encounter with the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, and God speaks to him, he says, why do you persecute me? When we understand that the church is him, it's his body, it's the people. When we understand that when he sees us, it's him, then when we have a response like this towards the church, it's like saying, I'll have some of you, Jesus, but not all of you. And I know in my own heart, man, 
There are times when I have that disappointment. There are times when I'm tired. I just think, I just, just want you. There are times when I've been hurt. And yet we must remember the church is part of who he is. It's his beautiful bride. It's what he's coming back for. And when, when we view the church in that way, we're viewing him in that way. It's big, isn't it? Secondly, next one, facing the facts. There's my second F. Facing the facts. Do you know, I had the privilege of watching, I was ill last week. I had a bed day whilst I was in uh, Anglesey. I quite like bed days, even when you're ill. A duvet day, that's the one. And um, I decided to watch Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. It's now on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's a brilliant film. <laughs> Debbie's got it there. And uh, just if you don't know who this is, this is a story about a journalist who was a staunch atheist, okay? And his wife has an encounter with God. She starts to talk to him about the fact that she wants to go to church, that she starts to believe. And he, he's an investigative journalist, okay? He's used to just facing hard facts. And he is, he is so offended that she would have a faith, that she's had some kind of encounter. He's like, there is, it's just a whole load of rubbish. And um, he gets very angry and he decides, the only way I'm going to turn my wife on this, because it's either going to break our marriage or I need to turn her mind. So he decides, I'm going to prove Christianity wrong. But obviously, it's so vast, he's like, I don't really know where to start. So he's got a colleague in the office who he goes to. He knows this guy's a Christian. And he said, listen, my wife has, has joined your club. And he said, I just, I can't get my head around it. I think it's an absolute load of rubbish. I want to prove to her that it's not true. And he's like, good luck with that. And he said, he said, look, I don't know where to start. And this guy said to him, do you know what? The whole of Christianity lies on the resurrection of Christ. He said, if you want to bring down Christianity, then that is where the stumbling block is. You bring down the resurrection. So off he goes he knows what to do and he starts to investigate and he starts to travel around the world speaking to um, professors and experts in the field as he looks at all these different angles trying to prove that the resurrection of Christ did not happen. He speaks to atheists, he speaks to um, professors who are Christians and he gets to this point in the film which we're going to show where really he can't disprove it. He's found as he looks at all the facts on the resurrection that it is overwhelming. And all of the evidence is pointing towards this event happening. But actually he's still unwilling to face the facts. And his colleague asks him, how much is enough? And he starts to recognize the bias in himself. We're going to watch this clip. Great film. And I recommend you uh, watch it. You can see here the facts pointed overwhelmingly to the fact of this resurrection. And yet, as they were facing them in his face, he, he did not want to admit them or look at them, even facing the facts. And you know, in this village of Nazareth, well, we see that there was evidence pointing right directly. There was facts pointing towards Jesus and who he was. Even within this, you have 
when he came to teach in the synagogue, many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. Where did he get this, these things? What's this wisdom he's been given? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Do you know, his teaching, according to scholars and what we read, was amazing. It wasn't the norm. People recognized there was something very special. It came from another source. There seemed to be a revelation that Jesus had that they were amazed by. The wisdom he was bringing was amazing in these situations. They'd already seen these amazing miracles or heard about them. You know, we've, we've studied them so far in Mark of him stopping a storm already. Okay? Power over nature. This demon-possessed guy, legion, thousands of demons, and God has authority. Jesus has authority over those demons. And this guy goes from being a pretty scary guy to being a guy who everybody recognizes is totally changed. This woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. 12 whole years. And this dead girl, okay, that Jesus has raised from the dead. And we know Jesus' fame was growing rapidly. So even the facts here that are staring Nazareth in the face, that this man has wisdom and understanding and authority and power that they couldn't explain, still didn't cause them to believe. They seem to see these things, but they just left them there. I think they thought, if we just decide not to deal with them, we can cope with that. And I believe in this culture today, we live in a culture where we have an overwhelming amount of doubt and question thrown at faith in God. But we as the church need to know how to stand firm, how to stand our ground, how to see the facts clearly. I just want to say facts alone won't convert someone, okay? But I think it's good, us as Christians, when we're rocked in our faith, to look again at the facts. We have to equip ourselves with answers to questions that our friends have. We have to search the scriptures ourselves to find out what is the foundation that we stand on. One of the biggest lies I think that's out there for our culture is that science has somehow disproved God. You're going to hear it so many times. Guys at school, you're going to hear this so many times. This is a lie. Okay? Ravi Zacharias, who is um, a very clever man, who is an apologist and used to be a scientist, studied at Oxford, says this. Not only do I think science is in no way incompatible with belief in God, but I actually think that science points strongly to the existence of God. What we have at the minute in the scientific world is more and more technology. That's pointing further and further afield to all of the many planets, the millions and billions and however many there is, this universe that seems to be extending and growing. As scientists are discovering more and more, they're realizing that Earth, the way that it's positioned, where it is, how it sustains life, more and more that there is an intelligent designer at work. Okay, this idea of intelligent design. 
I want to say, listen, let's not be fooled by, by what the world wants to make you feel. Wants to make you feel dumb for believing in God. Wants to make you feel like you must have no brains if you are to contemplate this. And yet, God, I believe, has given us brains. He's given us brains to investigate him, to look at the facts, to explore him, and to be absolutely convinced. We shouldn't be scared to search or question God. It's another thing. Don't be scared about investigating him. I think it's helpful. I don't just want you to listen to the preacher up here at the front and believe what we're saying. This is about you going back and searching the scriptures yourselves. It's so important. If you live off your parents' faith, the likelihood is when you're not there, there will be nothing. If you live off just somebody preaching at the front, the likelihood is that when it comes down to it, your faith will not be standing on massively strong ground. You must search this out yourselves. Rabbi Zacharias, as I said, he is this uh, apologist, probably one of the world's best apologists, and he says this, and I'm just going to end this section on this statement. He says, I could not be an atheist. I do not have that much faith. And in the film, you realise that this guy's mentor, who's not a Christian, has faced the same issue. And you see a scene where he says, listen, it takes as much faith to not believe as it does to believe in God. I could not be an atheist. I do not have that much faith. Finally, forgetfulness. I believe this is the third thing that when we look at Nazareth, what was going on, it's funny, my kids, it even happened this morning, but you know how forgetful kids are, okay? I send them off to do something, they've got halfway up the stairs, and they, they've suddenly totally forgotten I've asked them to do anything at all. It happened this morning in the kitchen, I won't tell you who it was, but I asked one of the kids to go make their breakfast, and I could see them wandering around the kitchen for about 30 seconds, and then they'd forgotten what they were doing. And they wandered off again. I was like, come back. You're making your breakfast. Ah, yes. And you know, that might sound funny, but that is the reality of who we are as humans. Throughout all of scripture, we see forgetfulness is a killer. Okay? And we're prone to it, all of us. And for me, as we look at Moses, this is one of the, the biggest times I see forgetfulness happening amongst the nation of Israel. We know that these guys have just been released by Pharaoh um, after God has sent plagues on this nation, amazing plagues where you see the power of God displayed. Pharaoh eventually releases them. He then starts chasing them. They come to the Red Sea. Man, what have you done, God? You've led us out here to kill us. He opens the very waters for them and they walk right through. They end up in the desert. And you think, man, if I'd have seen that, if I'd have, if I'd have been part of that, how could you ever question? And it feels like the next day they're like, hold on, God, you've got us through this Red Sea, but how are you going to feed us? You've led us out here to die. God graciously, manna from heaven, every day, daily, providing water and manna in the desert, daily. 
And yet, the people continue to doubt. Oh, we don't think God's really with us. In fact, we're going to start worshipping other gods because we think they might answer us in a different way. We find out, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of clouds to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. If anybody has seen on a daily basis God at work and power, and you think, man, how are they still questioning? And yet, when they're told to go into the promised land to look at it, we know they see giants and there's fear. And they suddenly think, we can't do this. This can't be God's plan for us. We'll get destroyed in there. And for me, this is one of the most blatant, obvious examples of absolute forgetfulness of the God that they are serving, of the God who is leading them and guiding them. They've forgotten his mighty power. They've seen remarkable things. And yet, unbelief has stemmed because of their forgetfulness. And actually, the consequence of unbelief is massive. The consequence for them was that an entire generation of people didn't make it into the promised land that God had for them. And we see Nazareth here. They had forgotten the mighty miracles that Jesus was performing. As I said, he stopped the storm. He'd healed the sick. He'd raised the dead. They'd forgotten the prophecies that had come through Scripture pointing to Jesus. It doesn't stop there because we see it in the New Testament. We see it in Galatians. This letter that was written to the church in Galatians, we see it. Um, they forgot this free gift of grace that God had given them. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh? We see it throughout Scripture even after Jesus' resurrection. And we see it here in the church. I'm guilty of it, daily, of forgetting the power of God in our midst, of the miracles that he's performed amongst us, of the salvations. He's brought people from darkness and into light. And very recently, we've got Josh sitting there as he brought his testimony. It's, we've got to keep reminding ourselves of the amazing miracles that he does, of the power that he has. We have a church here in Galatia who are trying to turn back to earn God's favour. When actually the very gospel that was brought to them was you can't do this in and of yourselves. It's a work of the Spirit. We're prone to forgetfulness. I've got one little video to show. Some of you have seen this before. Um, it's of a film, 51st Dates. And it helps us to understand forgetfulness. So this is the story of um, a woman who was in a car crash. And basically every day she goes to sleep, she wakes up and she can't remember anything from after the car crash. So every morning they have this video for her to stick on. So that she can see what's happened in her life and come back to that point in time. I think I made this point last time, but this feels like for us when it comes to forgetfulness, this is what it's about as we dwell on him. We have to be putting in that video every morning 
reminding ourselves of what God has done for us, of how he loves and adores us, of how he sees us. We have to remind ourselves of the miracles that he's worked amongst us, of the lives transformed. And we have to be playing that video over and over again, just reminding ourselves of the goodness of God each day, his mercy towards us and his grace that covers us. Okay? I just want to end by saying this. When it comes to doubt and unbelief, it's a very sensitive issue. And I'm not saying that it's wrong even to have thoughts about doubt or unbelief. I think it's actually very important to be honest with how we are feeling. But what I am saying is when it comes to this issue of doubt, we find at the very end of this passage that in verse 5 he says this, he says, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. This village that was full of doubters, it was full of people who would have been persuading everybody, do you know what, he's just, a, he's just Jesus. But actually there were still a few who even in their doubts, in their doubt, chose to come to Jesus. They went to meet with him. They chose not to withdraw in that season and that period or to ignore this man, but they chose to go and find out and receive. And they were healed. And if you're doubting this morning, if you have challenges in your life that you're struggling to overcome, then I want to urge you to not distance yourself from God in this process. God is so able to handle any doubt that you have. I want to encourage you to bring them to him. This isn't a problem for him. He can handle any doubts that you bring to him. I think he's rock solid anyway. And he wants to secure us in this love that he has for us. And I want us to pray for people this morning. But I want to remind us, finally, by just thinking about who this Jesus is when it comes to faith. I want to say he is more committed to you than you are to yourself. Than we can ever imagine. You are the apple of his eye. He delights in you. There is no chance of him becoming bored or disinterested in your life, in what is happening in your life, because he adores you. And he knows who he has made you to be. And it says that he will carry it on to completion. Okay? And I want to say that he will never, ever, ever forsake you. And he won't forget a single promise that he has made for you. And his word is full of promises that we can stand on in the midst of trouble. He is trustworthy and true. Come to him. Seek him. Don't back away when you might have doubts, but embrace him and take them to him and see what he does.